Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hey, good morning, Crosspoint. Thanks for joining with us this morning in worship. Uh, thanks to the band uh, for leading us this morning. It's just so great to be able to uh, come together, whether we're in the same space or whether we're far from each other, uh, to just come together in a spirit of worship and to just present ourselves to Christ uh, with everything. So anyway, th- so glad you're joining with us this morning. For those who are new, you who are new, welcome. We're so glad that uh, you're here. And uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And uh, if you have a Bible handy, whether paper or digital, I want to encourage you to go to uh, Romans chapter 2 and track along with us. As well, we have some notes online, the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes. And uh, you can follow in those. Um, It was great to have the scripture read for us this morning. Thank you, Sherry, for uh, leading us this morning in the scripture reading. Uh, Hey, let me start with a question this morning. Have you ever walked out onto a frozen lake before? Now, I don't know if you walked out, maybe you skated out, uh, maybe you were out ice fishing, maybe you were sledding, I don't know. But I wonder, have you ever had the experience of being out on a frozen lake in the middle of winter? Uh, I mean, I've done it plenty of times, but every time I go out onto the ice, for just a couple of minutes, I have this sense of uncertainty. I'm starting to wonder to myself, Am I going to fall through this ice, right? Uh, Should I really be out here? Will this ice support me? Is it safe to walk on? Now, I'm sure you've heard stories of people who have fallen through the ice. It is never a good story. I mean, we hear about some people who go through and never, ever make their way back to the surface, or those who are so numbed by the water that they can't find their way out, or those who do find their way out uh, just eventually succumb to hypothermia. I mean, these are not great stories. These are our Canadian version of horror stories we tell around the campfire, okay? They are, I mean, forget the boogeyman. We want people to just fear the ice. This is life in Canada. And yet... And yet, in spite of all the negative propaganda, people continue to fall through the ice. I mean, just the other day, uh, this past week, four people fell through the ice in Banff. I mean, they all survived. One person did get hypothermia, and that's good news. I was reading the other day that the number of people falling through the ice in the world is is continuing to rise. Now, part of the problem is climate change. I mean, lakes are warming. Uh, Our winters are a lot warmer as well. And the warmer the winter is, of course, the weaker the ice is. So the number of people falling through, in spite of the propaganda, is is still continually steadily going up. Now, I'll admit to you this morning, I I have actually fallen through the ice before uh, on a lake. Uh, Fortunately, the water was only knee deep, so it only went up this far. It didn't go up this far or this far, which is good news, okay? But let me tell you, when that happened, it was was frightening, and it was shockingly cold. But I'll tell you this, I did not fall through the water because of climate change. I fell through into the water because of overconfidence. You see, I I assumed that the ice that I was walking on was safe, right? When I really shouldn't have. I mean, it was the end of winter. The weather was starting to warming up. I had been warm for several days. But I was overconfident, bordering on hubris. I mean, I was essentially standing and resting on a false assumption when I went through. 
So what does this have to do with Romans chapter 2? Well, we're going to discover that there were some Christians in the church in Rome who had a false sense of confidence. I mean, I mean, they assumed that they were standing on firm ground, but in the, in the, in, and that the ground that they were standing on ultimately would support them in their standing with God. But in reality, what they were standing on was very, very thin ice. But before we do that, before we dive in, uh, let me just kind of get us up to speed on where we've been at in Romans so far. Uh, again, just to let you know that the book of Romans is a letter, an actual personal letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, a church he had never visited, but a church where he knew some of the people who were involved in the church. It was a small church, just about 100 people, that met in four or five different house groups in the city of Rome. And one of the reasons why he was writing to this church is because he was planning on visiting them. And he was hoping that when he visited them, he could bless them and they could bless him back in return. But he was also writing to help them navigate some troubled waters. You see, there was tension in the, in the city of Rome, uh, in, in the church in Rome, uh, between two groups of people. They were essentially, there were the Jewish Christians and then there were the Gentile Christians or the, or, the, or the non-Jewish Christians. And a number of the Jewish Christians assumed that the Gentiles needed to continue living under what was called the law of Moses or the Torah. So, so some of the tensions that were there were around Jewish traditions, things like holy days or, or food laws or uh, acts, uh, rituals like circumcision. So Paul was writing and he was kind of helping them to navigate this and to sort it out. And the way, the way that he was going to do this was just explaining the true gospel by giving a very robust theological understanding of what this gospel was all about. But you've got to understand that as you read through Romans, there's this undercurrent of tension between these two different groups of people. So uh, Paul begins to talk to the Gentiles, right? Because up to this point, what Paul wants to do is he's been trying to level the playing field in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. So he starts out with the Gentiles, and he's trying to show that both Jews and Gentiles are equally culpable and accountable. And since God shows no partiality between the two, uh, they both need the gospel. So he starts with the Gentiles in chapter 1, but then in chapter 2, he sets his sights on the Jews. And, and, and the Jews were essentially... Um, resting on their elevated status. And they might even have looked down on their noses at the Gentiles. So, so Paul, what Paul begins to do is he starts dismantling this false sense of security that they have. And what we discovered in chapter 2 in the beginning is that God doesn't, in fact, judge on a curve. That nobody gets a hall pass, that we are all equally culpable and we're all equally accountable. So today, Paul is continuing to address the Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers seem to have a false sense of reliance. And Paul is inviting them to consider that perhaps, maybe, they're just a little bit too overconfident. That, in fact, they might be standing on thin ice. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through Paul's kind of two arguments against this idea, this false sense of security. And then at the end, what I want to do is I want to talk about what this actually means for us today. So here's his first one. The first argument is this, is you can't rely on the law. Now, it's important to understand when you read through Romans in this part, this section, when Paul speaks about the law, he is referring to the Jewish law or what the Jews referred to as the Torah. So he, he's not speaking about not natural law. He's not speaking about some universal objective code. This is the law that was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. 
and it defined the way of life for the covenant people of God. And, you all, and in fact, you'll find it in the first five chapters of the Bible. What we would call the Pentateuch is the law, the, the, the books of Moses. So, so Paul is, in, is essentially he's shaking up a huge assumption of these Jewish believers because they assumed that because they had the law, then they somehow had a special advantage over the Gentile believers who were in the church. After all, I mean, the Lord had given them this law. Uh, they'd been keeping this law for centuries. And so because of this, this kind of gave us a tremendous sense of uh, confidence, maybe even sense of nationalistic pride. So Paul forces the question, and he asks this question. He says, how much can you really rely on the law? How much of an advantage is it, really? So he begins to kind of just chip away at the ice that they're standing on. And he does this by essentially asking two questions. First, he asks them, have you noticed how so many Gentiles do what the law requires even when they don't have the law? I mean, they live in a way that almost reflects the Torah. It's, it's written on their hearts. It's hardwired into their consciences. It's like a built-in guidance system. But then he asks the question, have you noticed how so many Jews break the law even though they have the law? Now, he's not saying that every, every Jew steals or commits adulteries or robs temples, but it's, he's saying that this, this is common enough among the Jewish people, among those who have the law, that it should maybe call into question this sense of false reliance. And Paul summarizes his argument in this way. It's not the hearers of the law who will be justified before God, but it's the doers of the law. And if you think that having the law is enough, my friend, you are walking on thin ice. But then, just to kind of toss a stick of dynamite, out onto the ice. Paul writes this in verse 24. He says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, what's he saying there? Well, I, I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase before, you had one job. You know that? You heard that phrase, right? So, so there have been countless memes that have been created under this banner of people who, who basically epically failed at the job that was given to them, that one job that was given to them. And, and I mean, I know in the past that I've shared some of these because they're just, they're just so delicious, okay? Uh, but uh, I want to give you some fresh examples this morning of these you had one job memes. Here's the first one. Yes, this city worker was hooked on phonics. Okay, let's look at the next one. Yes, two lefts do not always make a right. Let's look at the next one. Wait for it. This is what good planning looks like. All right. They had one job. And the point that Paul is making about Israel is Israel... You had one job, and that one job was simply this. You were to be a light to all of the nations. And, and all of those who are listening would have recognized what Paul was saying here because essentially he was quoting from a very famous text from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. And in this text, the prophet was critiquing Israel's ultimate failure. God had given them one job, and they had failed at it. And because of this, they were essentially being beaten up by their enemies, and they were going into exile. So it was, it was an explosive critique of the nation of Israel. 
See, the, the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people, his holy nation. And from the beginning, they were called to be a light to the Gentiles. I mean, when God promised Abraham, uh, he said to them, I, I'm, all the families of the earth would be blessed through you and your descendants. And then when they met on Sinai, when God gave them the Torah, so he said to them, listen, I'm giving you this law so that you will walk in faithfulness before me, and you will be my representative to all of the other nations. You are my treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. Represent, represent me. But Israel ultimately failed at their job. And time and time again, they abandoned the law. So instead of being God's representative to the nations, they tried to be like the other nations. They followed the gods of other nations. They relied on other nations when they should have relied on God. So Paul's saying, listen, if you look at the sum total of Israel's story, having the law did not keep them from breaking the law. It's not the hearers of the law who will be justified before God. It is the doers of the law. Well, here's the second critique or the second argument that Paul gives. He says, you also, you you can't rely on circumcision. Now, I'm just going to assume this morning that most of you know what circumcision is. If you don't know, just be careful if you're Googling it. Uh, Kids, this might be a great question for you to ask your parents at dinner time today. All right, Uh, most of us know what circumcision is, but we don't always know what circumcision means. To the Jews, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. So when God first made his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, he required that every male among them would be circumcised. He called it a covenant in their flesh. And in fact, if someone wasn't circumcised, they were excluded from the covenant. So circumcision was, it was very fundamental to Jewish identity. It was a mark of their distinction, the sign of the covenant. And for many, it showed and then made them believe that they were somehow through circumcision under God's favor. And some Jews assumed that once you were circumcised, you were basically secure in the covenant. So faithfulness to the law wasn't what kept you in the covenant. It simply described how you would live when you were in the covenant. But Paul, once again, he starts chipping away at the ice around their feet. And he says some things that actually would have been really shocking to a devout Jew, which Paul once was. He says, you know what? Circumcision alone won't save you from the judgment. It only has value if you keep the law. But even more so, on top of that, Paul goes so far to say uncircumcised Gentiles who act morally are on higher ground than circumcised Jews who break the law. So Paul was essentially just kind of pulling the rug out from under their feet. Circumcision, he says, it's an outward sign of the covenant. That's his point. He was saying, you know, it's basically basically nothing more than a product label. You know, speaking of labels, I've heard of a practical joke uh, that you can play on somebody if you're ever house-sitting for them. What you do is when they go away is you take out all the cans in their kitchen. Maybe you've heard of this before. You take all the labels off of the cans, and then you kind of mix them around, and then you glue them back onto the cans again so that when they get home, they pull out a can of tomato soup, open it up, and it's consummate. Or they open up a can of beans and open it up. Oh, no, it's cream corn. It's really, really, really funny. And it's it's particularly funny if you do it to newlyweds when they go away on their honeymoon and they come back again. Don't ask me how I know. We all know labels are important, but labels can also be misleading. And in fact, it's what's inside that counts the most. 
And Paul was inviting the Jewish Christians to look behind the label because true circumcision, he says, it's more than skin deep. He says it in verse 29. True circumcision, in fact, is a matter of the heart. And of course, for those listening, this, this, this wouldn't really have been a new concept for them because Paul was reminding them of something that the Lord had said to Israel numerous times in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah. Let me give you an example from Deuteronomy uh, 10, 16. This is what the Lord said. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So here in Deuteronomy, in this particular text, Paul is, uh, telling, uh, the Lord was telling Israel that day that they could not keep the law without a heart that was fully surrendered. So the thing is, is that keeping the covenant starts on the inside, and then it works its way to the outside. Covenant keeping is essentially a matter of the heart. But you see, there's a real problem with the heart, with the human heart. And, and that's a problem for all people, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. And as a matter of fact, Paul has unveiled this several times already in the book of Romans. Let me give you a recap of what Paul has said about the heart. First of all, he said in 121 that the hearts of the Gentiles have been darkened. He said in 124 that our hearts have been given into impurity. And because of this, in 2.5, their hardened hearts are storing up wrath, even though the law is in fact written on our hearts. What this means then is, is that we have a real heart condition. I mean, the heart wants to do good, but the heart won't always do good. So there's something wrong with our hearts, <clears throat> and we're in need of a good surgeon, one who can actually do this inner work, this inner work of circumcision. <laughs> this is why anybody who says to you, just follow your heart, is probably giving you the worst advice ever. It is like trying to use a compass in a room full of magnets, as I've said before. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9 says it this way. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So maybe the next time somebody tells you, hey, just follow your heart, what you should do is just reach out and honk their nose and then say to them, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. It's just an idea. You, you follow your heart on that one. See, Paul would say our hearts are darkened and our hearts are hardened. And there's something deeply wrong inside all of us. And this is why, friends, this is why we need the gospel. So what can be done? What can be done with our hardened and darkened hearts? Well, Paul alludes to this for the first time in the book of Romans in verse 29 of chapter 2. Let me look at what he says. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Okay, we've got that. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul seems to be saying here is, is that this heart transformation cannot happen simply by obeying the letter of the law. It can only happen through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. If it could be done on our own, we'd get the praise, but because it depends on God, he gets the praise. And what the law was unable to do, God can do and God will do through the power of his Holy Spirit. 
Paul's actually giving us a foreshadow of what comes next in the book of Romans. This beautiful and majestic gospel of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And through his death, he uh, freed us from the power of sin. And through his resurrection, uh, this resurrection power now lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And this is ours when we put our complete trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And Paul says this, he says, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So our confidence must be fully in God and in Him alone. We cannot stand anywhere else. Anywhere else is thin ice. Any other ground we stand on is sinking sand. That is the summary of what Paul is trying to say here. This is how, how Gentiles will, in fact, stand on higher ground over Jews who are faithful to the covenant because they have the Spirit at work in their lives, both Jews and Gentiles, turning their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, taking the Word of God, the law, and putting it on their hearts, and the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of them and empowering them to do and to become all that God wants for them. So what do we take away then from today's text? Well, I'd like us to consider two questions today. First of all, are you relying on your learning? See, I, I think like the Jewish believers, we, we can be great hearers of the word, but not necessarily doers of the word. I mean, think about it. I mean, we have tremendous access to information. We, we live in the information age. Think about how many Bibles you have in your house. How many, how many sermons have you listened to in your life? Try and count the Bible studies you've attended, the podcasts you have listened to. I mean, some of you may have even taken formal theological training. In the Western world in which we live in right now, we, we, we have access to one of the biggest Christian media machines the world has ever known. I mean, forget Gutenberg. We've got Zondervan. We've got Baker Books. We've got Tyndale. We've got CCM. Focus on the family right now media. Even Kanye West is now putting out content. We have publishing houses and radio programs and websites and YouTube channels. We have every opportunity to hear the word, but are we doers? And when the world sees us, do they see the image of Jesus? And when we are by ourselves and nobody is looking except God alone, are we faithful? Now, I'm not downplaying the importance of hearing, okay? I mean, we need to get God's word into our heads and in our hearts. The psalmist writes, you know, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All scripture is God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 is useful teaching and training us. I get that, okay? But if we just hear the word and we do not respond in glad obedience, where does that leave us? Friends, hearing is not enough to save you. Hearing is not enough to change you. What you need is the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you only rely on your learning, you are on shaky ground. Here's a second question. Are you relying on your labels? I mean, are you only just a follower of Jesus on the outside, right? Because Paul said here, it's the thing, you need heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. We need an inner work of transformation. I mean, Jesus himself affirmed this. His biggest accusation against the Pharisees was, the, was hypocrisy. Essentially, they were play-acting. They were posers and fakers. They liked to clean the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup was full of corruption. And I think some of us are really, really good at keeping our labels polished. You might go to church regularly, use the appropriate Christian lingo, 
memorize John 3.16 in several languages backwards. We have theological debates. We tweet online about our favorite issues. We raise our hands during worship. But Paul will say just keeping up appearances is a recipe for a spiritual crash and burn. And what God ultimately wants to do is a powerful work inside of us from the inside out. And he came to radically renew and restore our lives. This is what he came for. This is what he died for. This is why he sent his Holy Spirit. But this is never possible by just continuing to go through the motions or keeping up appearances. What we need as the people of God is a continual, fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. We receive the Spirit when we first surrender our lives to Christ. This much is true in Scripture. So the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. The Apostle Paul would say that in Ephesians 1.13. But then later in Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us we need to continue to have him fill us. He says in Ephesians 5.18, we need to be filled and keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. The deposit is not enough. We need this constant outpouring, this constant refreshing of the Holy Spirit in our lives if that inner transformation of the Holy Spirit of, of God is going to work. Well, how do we do this? Well, what catalyzes this empowerment and outpouring of the Holy Spirit is one word, and that word is surrender. In fact, it is not possible for this transformative work to take place in our lives apart from surrender. See, the thing about Ephesians 5 is it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if it says, be filled, then that's passive. It doesn't say, fill yourself. It says, be filled. Be filled means, allow God to fill yourself. It requires surrender. And there are essentially two sides to surrender. The first side is giving up control. And the second side is giving up trying to do it on your own. On the first side, you say, Lord, I give you my all. And the second side, you say, Lord, I receive your all. That's what surrender is all about. And this is the posture that catalyzes the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. You know, the Apostle Paul understood this. I mean, he understood it very personally. He knew he had weaknesses. He knew he had shortfalls. He knew he needed to surrender and lean into God if he was going to be changed. This is what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what he says. He says, but he, the Lord he's speaking about, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <clears throat> you see, the, the discovery of weakness in the believer's life, we think, oh, that's a terrible thing. That's a great thing. The discovery of weakness in a believer's life is a tremendous gift because it's only in our weakness that we discover the true source of our strength and power. We discover God's power, which is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, when we are weak, then we are strong. And Paul says, you know, I'm fine with weakness. I'm perfectly content with weakness. And the reason why is because that was his posture. He had a posture of surrender. And this led him to strength. And maybe you today are saying, that's exactly 
what I need in my life. Because the heart needs surgery. The heart needs renewal. So what do we do? How do, how do we do this practically? How do we receive the Spirit's power in our lives? Well, let me suggest two things. Number one is you first need to embrace your weakness. Number two is you need to completely surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. Let me talk about number one first, embrace your weakness. Embracing your weakness is where you really get honest about yourself before God. I mean, you confess everything. Confess means to come into agreement with. So you're confessing something God already knows. You're agreeing with him about what's true or going on in your life. Be honest with him about your failure. I mean, talk about your fears, what's holding you back. Talk about your idols and sins, the things that are dragging you down, the things you cling to. Talk about your frustration about not being able to change yourself, your sadness. Talk about your brokenness. Talk about your lostness. You might even talk to him about your hunger and thirst, about your, this dissatisfaction you have, this soul's thirst, this longing for more. And take all of that before Christ and give it to him. You know his shoulders are big enough to carry all of that, to bear the weight of all of that, because he bore the weight of the sins of the whole world. Surely he can carry your frailty and your weaknesses. And that's the starting point. It's coming to terms with where you are truly at Embrace your weakness, but then completely surrender yourself to the Spirit. Invite Him to come and to fill you in every way. Surrender yourself to His will. Say, with God, with glad obedience, I want to do whatever you ask of me. Surrender yourself completely to His power. God, I need your power to come and to change me and to transform me in every, every square inch of my life. Wait on Him. Seek Him. Call out to Him. And don't just do it once. And don't just do it in a hurry. Do it many times. Do it again and again. And as you do it, receive him with arms open wide as you would a gift. That is how we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and outpour himself into our lives. Be filled and keep on being filled. And this is what will lead to the transformation of our hearts from the inside out. So cross point, embrace your weakness, completely surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a couple minutes for prayer this morning at the end. We do this every week while we're here in lockdown. And I want to give you an opportunity to just prayerfully reflect on what we've heard this morning, on God's word. I'm sure that while we were listening, the Holy Spirit was tapping you on the shoulder and saying, listen, I want to identify something in your life, something to celebrate maybe something to change, but the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. I want to give you a couple of minutes this morning to just talk to God, to shut things out, to close off everything else, and just listen and respond. Can we do that this morning? God loves you. He is for you. He is with you, and he wants to be at work in your life, and he wants to be in your life. So let's take a couple of minutes and just spend some time in prayer, and then I'll close us off in prayer.
God, thank you for the gift of your promised Holy Spirit. <clears throat> thank you that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. <clears throat> but we confess today, Lord, that we want more, that we need more. That, God, we don't want to go on posing and faking. We don't want to go on having our heads full of knowledge, but our hearts full of darkness or just deflated. We need you, God, to come and to fill us, to come in and to transform us, to fill us with the love of God, change us from the inside out, to give us hope and healing and restoration and renewal. And so, God, we call out to you, we surrender to you, and we say, Lord, have your way inside of us, each and every one of us. Have your way in me, oh God. We thank you that you are faithful and you will do it as we continue to press into you in the days ahead and even today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.